Good morning, brothers and sisters. I'm, I am Bob Eskenazi, and I'm a, a covenant partner here at uh, First Presbyterian Church. I, can, I don't know why I can't get that straight. Help me. This morning, we will continue our series on the second part of Isaiah, From Ruin to Restoration, by talking about one of the most beautiful words in the Christian vocabulary, the word redemption. Our passage comes in the 44th chapter, beginning in the 21st verse, and you'll find it on page uh, 719 on the Bibles that we've uh, placed there by your seats, and of course you can follow along with your own Bible, and uh, also read it off the screens behind me. Let's hear the word of the Lord. Remember these things, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. I formed you. You are my servant. O Israel, you will not be forgotten by me. I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like mist. Return to me, for for I have redeemed you. Sing, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout, O depths of the earth. Break forth into singing, O mountains, O forest and every tree in it. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob and will be glorified in Israel. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb. I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself, who frustrates the signs of liars and makes fools of diviners, who turns wise men back and makes their knowledge foolish, who confirms the word of his servant and fulfills the counsel of his messengers, who says of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited, and, the cities, and of the cities of Judah they shall be built, and I will raise up their ruins. Who says to the deep, be dry, I will dry up your rivers. Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and he shall fulfill all my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built, and of the temple your foundations shall be laid. The word of the Lord. All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. Lord Jesus Christ, my name is Bob Fuller, and I, I don't get to be in here as often as I would like to be. Um, But it is a joy to be with you this morning. Um, Let's turn to the Lord in prayer. O Lord, your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be holy and acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. For it is in the name of your Son, our precious Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and by the power of the Holy Spirit that we pray. Amen. In the passage that the other Bob just read to you this morning, the prophet Isaiah refers to God as Israel's Redeemer. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer. Now what is redemption? Redemption is one of those churchy words that we use all the time without necessarily understanding what we mean when we say it. And honestly, when you really understand what it means... The word redemption becomes one of the most beautiful words in the Christian vocabulary. So to explain it, to define it, let me start off with a story. 
This is an old preacher story. You may have heard it like in some camp devotion or maybe at some point in Sunday school, but it's an old story. But it's a story about a boy who built a remote-controlled model sailboat in his garage. He worked for weeks putting it together, designing it, carving it, gluing it, and painting the, the little sailboat until it was ready for the water. He spent hours soldering the wiring and installing the receiver for the remote control. And one day, he took it out to the park, took it to the pond, and had a great time sailing it out there on the lake. But it was, it was a great boat. It was a great day. The sun was shining. The wind was blowing. It was responsive to the controls. And at first, it was sailing beautifully. But then, this strong wind kicked up and started to blow it away from the shore, out of range of the receiver, out of range of the controls, and beyond the little boy's field of vision. Now, he, he got panicked, and he started running up and down the shore. He started to go around, and, and he tried to get as far as he could around the lake, but he just couldn't get all the way around, and it went beyond his field of vision, and he lost the boat. He lost it in these reeds, and he just couldn't find it. And he would go out there every day, just first for days and then for weeks, he's just trying to find that little boat that he'd built. But one day, as he was walking to school, walking through town, he passed by a pawn shop. And he happened to see, in the front window of that pawn shop, his boat sitting right there in the window. And he was so excited, and he ran into the, into the shop, and he found the owner. He said, he said, that's my boat. And the owner of the pawn shop said, no, it's not. That's my boat. You know, I, I bought it. A guy brought it in here, and I bought it from him. He says, but, but, but I made it. He said, I understand, kid, and I'm sorry about that, but you know, I bought that boat, and I, I can't just give it up. I mean, I'm going to have to make my money back on it. And the boy was just despondent. He, he didn't know what to do, but he got his head together, and he went back to his parents, and he said, I need some extra chores to do. He did his extra chores. He went to the neighbors and he mowed all their lawns and he painted a couple of fences. He cleaned out a couple of garages. He kept, all, he kept doing all these things to earn a little bit of extra money. And he finally had enough money. He went back to the store and he took the money to the shop owner and he bought the boat again. And it was scratched up. It was, the sails were, were torn. The paint was chipped. The remote control motor in it looked like it had been waterlogged. It looked like it had been through a class five hurricane. But the boy took it home and he cleaned it up and he repainted it and he re-rigged the sail and he rewired the motor and he got it rolling again and he took it out of the pond because boats are supposed to go on the water. And he sailed it out again and it came back and the wind caught it and it was beautiful. And after just a fun afternoon of sailing that boat, he picked it up. And as he was taking it out of the water, he just took it in his arms and he hugged it. And just that moment, this young couple was walking by. And the lady walking by said, wow, you really love that boat, don't you? And the little boy said, of course I love it. First, I made it. And then when it was lost, I bought it back and rebuilt it. It's twice mine. The word redeem 
It's actually a financial term. It means to buy back or to pay for. It can be a trade. It can be a transaction. Say, for example, if you redeem a coupon or a a prize. But in the Bible, the word redeem also means to claim or to take responsibility for something. Think about Boaz and the story of Ruth. It was his responsibility as Ruth's redeemer kinsman to claim her and take care of her after her husband died. Now the Bible, the passage that we've read today, tells us that God is both our maker and our redeemer. Listen to what Isaiah says at the beginning of this chapter. But now hear, O Jacob, my servant, Israel, whom I have chosen. Thus says the Lord who made you, who formed you from the womb and will help you. You see, God made the people of Israel to be his chosen people. There was no nation of Israel until God called Abraham and his wife Sarah and promised to make their family and their descendants a great people. So God is the maker of Israel. But Isaiah also calls the Lord Yahweh Israel's redeemer. Thus says the Lord, your redeemer who formed you from the wound. He there doubles down again on the maker part. So the Lord was Israel's maker, but Isaiah says that he was also Israel's redeemer. I formed you from the womb, I made you, and he's the redeemer, the one who buys us back from ruin. Here's what happened in the history of Israel. Tragically, Israel drifted away and at times even ran away from God from his authority, from his mission, even from his protection. She'd forgotten her purpose. As is so often the case, as the people became more and more powerful, as they got more and more prosperous, they also became more and more self-absorbed. The God that they once worshipped, they began to treat with contempt. While continuing to pay lip service to God, they fell deeply into sin and pagan corruption. The aristocracy practically enslaved the lower classes. They exploited the weak and the poor. And they'd forgotten that God had chosen Israel out of all the tribes, out of all the families and peoples of the earth to be a whole nation of missionary people. A whole nation declaring his truth in a world of ignorance and confusion and lies and showing God's love in a world of violence and apathy and injustice. But in spite of warning after warning, by prophet after prophet, their rebellion against God, their corruption, their idolatry and injustice, finally came home to roost. And in 587 B.C., God sent the armies of King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon to humble his people. The Babylonians broke through the walls of Jerusalem. They put the city to the torch. The temple was demolished. The people were slaughtered. And those who were not put to the sword were dragged off to be slaves in exile in Babylon. Israel was in ruin. But even when their rebellion left them exposed, humiliated, and ruined, God loved this little boat of a nation that he'd built. And in spite of everything, God claimed Israel as his own. That's what we've been talking about for the last four chapters in the book of Isaiah. 
Isaiah says, in Isaiah, God says, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. God is saying to Israel, you are mine. You are twice mine. I made you and now though you are ruined, I'm going to claim you. You are my people and I am your God. In this passage, God refers to himself as Yahweh Eloheinu. Do you know what that means? It doesn't mean I am just I am the Lord, a God. It means I am the Lord, your God. There is a relationship here. There is a connection. God is claiming them and saying we are connected. This is not just about identity. This is about relationship. And the Lord was going to redeem this people that he'd made. And he began just simply by claiming them as his own. I'm going to claim you. I want people to know, in spite of everything, that you're still my people. But we have to remember that redemption is not just about claiming people. It's also about restoring people. It's about God restoring his people. Because God doesn't just claim us. He also cleans us up. You may remember a few months ago me telling you that back in June, we had a fire in our attic in one of the upstairs bedroom uh, dormers uh, upstairs. One of the hardest things to deal with after a fire is smoke damage. Have any of you ever been through a fire, had to deal with smoke damage? It is so aggravating. I mean, after you've cleaned up all the burned wood and the insulation and the broken glass, you still have to deal with that pollution that penetrates into the carpet and into the curtains and into the clothes and into your walls and into the couch cushions and the bedding. And the smell is so strong that when you walk into that room, it just activates your memory. And every time I would walk into that room, my heart would start to pound and my blood pressure would go up. It was like I was back on that same day with the fire still blazing again. Well, in the aftermath of that fire, we learned a lot about restoration. And we learned that a critical part of the restoration process is what they call remediation. Remediation is a technical word for deep cleaning. Before we could live in that room again, we had to get rid of that pollution. We needed remediation. The great 19th century Dutch theologian Herman Bavink describes sin as spiritual pollution. Let me give you a really simple summary of the concept of sin. Sin is first rejection of God through rebellion or denial or ignorance. And second, sin is rejection of people through hostility or abuse or neglect or apathy. Think about it. If Jesus defines righteousness as loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving your neighbor as yourself, and then loving one another the way that he has loved us, then unrighteousness is the neglect or, ne- or rejection of those loves, of God, of people, or of both. When we defy or deny God, when we reject God, we are saying that God's truth, that God's authority, those things don't matter. And when we reject people, we're saying that other people don't matter, that their peace, their joy, their lives, those things don't matter. And when we treat God like he doesn't matter, or treat other people or ourselves even 
like they don't matter, whether we do it deliberately, deliberately or casually, those toxic attitudes get into everything and pollute our lives like smoke damage. It wrecks our relationships. It wrecks our attitudes. Our rebellion from God's authority and our rejection of other people fouls everything we do. And as Paul says, it perverts our view of others and it leads to sexual immorality, pornography, exploitation, neglect, abuse, jealousy, anger, enmity, division, and rivalry. It leads to addiction and drunkenness. It leads to racism and justice and political corruption. It traps us in anxiety and despair and addiction and it distorts our understanding of who we really are and why we exist. When when we reject God, we fall into all kinds of spiritual problems as well. Idolatry, superstition, atheism, heresy, all turn our eyes away and blind us from the real God who loves us and who can really make a difference in our lives and in the world. But sin is like smoke. It blinds us to the truth of God. It will suffocate you. It will poison you and it can overwhelm you fast so how does God deal with the pollution with the smoke damage that corrupts our lives how does a holy God restore his unholy people well here's what Isaiah says in 44 22 which we read this morning he says I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like a mist Return to me, for I have redeemed you. The Lord is saying, I have swept your sins, swept away your sins that have corrupted you, and I've swept them away like a mist. I have blown them away like smoke. I've burned them away like a morning fog. When God redeems us, He doesn't just claim us. He blows away the spiritual pollution that poisons our relationship with him and our relationships with other people. He removes sin's power over us and he sets us free so that we no longer have to be held captive in brokenness, in guilt, and in the toxic attitudes that blind us from seeing him or seeing our neighbors or even seeing ourselves the way God wants us to understand us. Now, why does this matter to us? Well, as we think about this story, I want you to remember this. That what applies to to Israel historically applies to us spiritually, both as individuals and as the people of Jesus Christ. Just like the people of Israel, we have gotten lost from God. We get blown away by the distractions of the wind and the world. You know, there's another version of this story in which this boat doesn't just get lost, it gets stolen. The point is, we've all got our own version of this story about how we got away, how we got lost from God. Doesn't matter what your situation is, we've all got our own version of this story. And like Israel, we need a redeemer. But when God's people turned away from God, The Lord raised up an empire. He raised up an empire called Babylon, the Babylonians, to humble his people. But then, in 539 B.C., 
God raised up another empire and another king to set Israel free. God raised up Cyrus, the king of Persia, modern-day Iran, to conquer Babylon and open the door for Israel to return home. Look at verse 28. Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he shall fulfill all my purpose. But what was his purpose? Cyrus and the Persians were God's tool to redeem and restore Israel, to liberate them and rebuild the nation. Now, I want to be clear here. Don't confuse the tool with the hand that holds it. It is God who gets the glory. In the Old Testament, Isaiah declares that the Lord, not Cyrus, but the Lord is the redeemer of Israel. But the Persians were the sword in the hand of the Almighty, and Cyrus was the instrument that he used to set the people free. As we look to the, Old, uh, to the New Testament, we see that, he, that God is both. In the New Testament, God the Redeemer reveals himself most fully through his word made flesh, through Emmanuel, God with us, his son Jesus Christ. And it is Jesus that God sent to redeem us. St. Augustine, the great 4th century theologian of the church, once said that the new is in the old concealed and, in, and the old is in the new revealed. What that means is that certain principles of God's plan are demonstrated one way in the Old Testament through the history of Israel, but then fully revealed in the New Testament through the life death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We need to understand that because it's important to see that God was not just at work way back then. He's at work in us now. Like Israel, we need a redeemer. And like Israel, we have a redeemer. When our lives are wrecked and we fall into ruin, the Lord redeems us. He claims us, and he cleans us, and he makes us his own. And he does it because he loves us. He claims us as his own, not just once, but twice. He claims us, and then he cleans us because the pain and the corruption of sin is too real for God to ignore the disrespect that we show to God is real and it can't be ignored. The pain and the damage we cause to God's children, to others and ourselves is real, is too real for God to ignore. And God cares too much about us and he cares too much about his other children and his own character to ignore the smoke damage that stains our lives and suffocates us. And just as God used Cyrus as a tool to set Israel free from Babylonian captivity, God sent his own son, Jesus Christ, to free us from the spiritual captivity and pollution of sin. Now, but what Cyrus brought to bear by the sword and with armies on the battlefield, Jesus brought to bear with the sacrifice of his own blood on the battlefield of Golgotha. In Ephesians 1.5, the Apostle Paul wrote that Christ redeemed us. He paid our price. He wrote, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. 
You know, one thing I've learned over the last few months is that remediation is expensive. It's expensive. It costs a lot. Somebody has to pay for it. That's why Jesus Christ gave his life to pay the penalty and absorb the guilt that we deserve to suffer for every cruel or lousy thing that we have ever done. The Bible says, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's what God did through Jesus Christ. He gave his life to pay for every lie that you and I have ever told to manipulate others, every selfish choice, every act of violence or disrespect that we've ever committed, and every time that we have brought pain to ourselves or to one another or to the Father himself. He traded the lives that we have messed up for his son's perfect life. He lived the life that we could never live and endured the death that we could never endure to remove the sin that traps our souls and poisons our relationships and ruins our lives. But why? Why would he do that? Why did he, why did he redeem us? He redeems us to rebuild us. And he rebuilds us because he has a purpose for us. The Lord said, Jerusalem shall be built and of the temple your foundation shall be laid. Just as Cyrus was going to be instrumental in rebuilding Israel, so Jesus rebuilds us. God's purpose in redeeming Israel was not simply to take them back home. It was to put them back on mission, to restore their purpose. Jesus began the process of rebuilding us by rebuilding humanity. What I mean by that is that when the word became flesh, humanity finally became what it was supposed to be, the image of God. Jesus didn't just die for our sins. He lived to show us what humanity is supposed to be. He's our model. He's our example. He's our template. And by his Holy Spirit, God is rebuilding us from the inside out. He's rebuilding us by his word of truth. He strengthens us with resistance. He equips us with experience. And he's given us this whole toolkit of tools to rebuild our lives. Kindness, peace, patience, joy, love, goodness, faithfulness, self-control, gentleness. And that's his purpose in our redemption. Not simply to save us from destruction, but to save us for the mission of his kingdom. Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You know what that means? That means that God has a plan and a purpose for your life. It means that you're not an accident. It means that, that he wants you to be his word of truth, his voice of truth. He wants you to be the hands and feet of his love. He wants you to be his arm of compassion and the light of his gospel. Our lives, our work, our marriages, all of these things are broken, but God can take everything that is broken in our lives and redeem them for the sake of his glory. He wants to turn our trials and tragedies into triumphs. 
And if you don't believe that, just look at the cross. The crucifixion of Jesus Christ was the most vile expression of human oppression and evil that has ever existed. And yet God took it and he redeemed it and made the cross the most beautiful symbol of love that the world has ever known. Just as he has reclaimed Israel, God has claimed you. And he's claimed, he has cleaned you by the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. And by his grace, he is rebuilding you for his purpose. And just like that little boy at the boat, God has said over you, I do, I do love you. And to prove it, I, I bought you twice. I built you and I redeemed you. That's the truth of it, y'all. That boy did not just buy back his boat and repair it. He built it back better. We have a redeemer who loves us so much to pay for us twice. We pray with me. Lord, it was hard for the people of Israel to believe that you had not forgotten them. It was hard for them to believe that, that you still cared, and I'm sure it was especially hard for them to believe that you had any kind of purpose for their lives. And yet, oh Lord, you didn't just make them, you bought them back, you redeemed them because you still had a purpose for them. You still had blessings for them. You know, Lord, it's just as hard for us to believe it too. It's hard to believe that after everything we've done, after the ways that we have casually or actively rebelled against you, after all of that, it's hard to believe that you would still want us badly battered and broken up as we are it's hard to believe that you have any purpose or use for us and yet you sent your son to prove that you were ready to buy back with his blood that which you'd created Lord help us not just to feel your claim on our lives help us not just to understand that you are Yahweh Eloheinu you are our God but help us to remember oh Lord and help us to feel it deep in our bones that you have a purpose for us that we are not just claimed, but we are fearfully and wonderfully made. And we are not just possessed, but we are blessed and highly favored. That we are your people. And you love us so much that you bought us twice. We thank you, O oh God, for your grace. We thank you that you are our Redeemer.